Run the Army's race in person at the Pentagon. Army 10-Miler general registration is now open. Go to Army10Miler.com to register today. General registration presented by General Dynamics. Register today at Army10Miler.com. Welcome to The Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Kevin McCullough. Tim Keller, the longtime New York City pastor and prolific writer, goes home to be with the Lord. We'll hear from those who were shaped by him. Pastor Keller embodied, you know, harmless as doves, shrewd as serpents. And one of the later interviews with him. I'm just trying to make sure that my heirs and my sons and all that know where everything is sure. and where things are in order. where this stuff is. And we'll hear his unique and distinctive approach to presenting and defending the faith. I think most skeptics are used to people saying, oh, Christian religion is true. I'm not going to actually spend much time trying to, to prove that it is. I'm actually going to try to show you why, uh, why Christianity actually offers so much. All this and more. Thanks for joining us. I'm Kevin McCullough, your host. Great to be with you. I'm coming to you from my home station in New York City, AM 570 WMCA, NRB's Station of the Year. You can hear my own program live each weekday afternoon on AM 570 The Mission and AM 970 The Answer. Learn more at thatkevinshow.com. Thanks for joining us today for a special edition of our program. It was 1989 when Tim Keller moved to New York City with his wife Kathy and their three sons. He would go on to plant a church, Redeemer Presbyterian, eventually ministering to thousands each week here in New York City. He authored over 30 books. He died a week ago Friday after a three-year battle with pancreatic cancer. If we think about our pastors as those that are like Jesus, a shepherd, then Tim Keller certainly was that for not only the people that attended Redeemer Presbyterian, but for all of the thousands and thousands of people that he impacted via his teaching and via his writing. I turn to one of many impacted by Dr. Keller, John Wellborn of Salem Church in Staten Island. Talk to us about how his ministry impacted you. How did it help shape you as a young pastor? Well, you have to categorize it almost. I mean, so when you talk about pastoring professionals and people that have high demand work environments, you know, uh, Pastor Keller was such a, a trailblazer in the area of faith and work. So uh, his book, Every Good Endeavor, helped me to develop my theology of vocation and at the same time pastor people in my church in demanding work environments, just like he did for all those years in Manhattan. You know, when you talk about engaging the, the lostness of a city, you take Center Church or you take his his work on on. Church planting, which was fundamental to, to, to my calling as a pastor and church planter, um, to read over how God led him to New York City and, and led him to engage the city with the gospel. Uh, you talk about uh, apologetics and how to deal with skeptics and do so in a kind, loving, and compassionate way. You read A Reason for God, and then you hear his lectures in secular college environments where he, he took all manner of attacks but yet did so gently and lovingly, but also very capably. He, he addressed the challenges to Christianity in such a, a loving and kind and winsome way. And so really, when you ask about his impact, it, it's categorical. In so many areas of my pastoral ministry, I've been touched and marked by the ministry of, of Tim Keller. We're going to miss him greatly. Yeah. Talk to me a little more about apologetics and theological impact. Did he help you challenge or strengthen your theology as it's being given from your pulpit? 
Absolutely. There, there was nobody greater in helping you to see Christ in the Old Testament than Pastor Keller. I mean, from any text, from any place, uh, anywhere in the Bible, Leviticus or Numbers, any of those places that a lot of us pastors kind of avoid if we can, tongue in cheek, I mean, but you could find Christ in those passages. You could show how Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the one who is the better Abraham, the, the better Isaac, the better David. And so preaching was affected. I, I, I think his book on preaching is a fundamental text that I give to all of my staff and others that I have a chance to pour into from a preaching context, because he really does help us to see how preaching is not just sound doctrine and theology, but it's also connecting with the culture. What are the presuppositions of the people in your pews? What are they dealing with? What are their pain points? And what are their assumptions that you need to challenge and also uh, address from a biblical perspective? So from a preaching standpoint, you know, so helpful. But then from the apologetic standpoint, when you're dealing with those that are skeptical, you know, what do you address? How do you approach them? How do you take their critiques or skepticisms at their greatest form and not demean them or belittle them, but to show that there's a fingerprint of their creator that's leading them that they need to listen to. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that. So yeah, yeah and no, no question, just um, incredible impact in, in leading pastors like me to a more Christ-centered approach. There was a word you used earlier that was winsomeness. How did he impact you in terms of the issue of telling the gospel, but telling it from the viewpoint that it's ultimately the most winsome message there is? Absolutely. No, I, I think that Pastor Keller embodied, you know, harmless as doves, shrewd as serpents. There was no impugning his doctrine. He believed the, what the Bible taught about, about marriage and family and sexuality and preached it unapologetically. Tim Keller was born and raised in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Even though he wasn't a Yinzer, the Pennsylvania Connection helped foster a year-long friendship with John Hall and Kathy Emmons, our hosts on Word 101.5 FM in Pittsburgh. It was in February this year when John and Kathy last had Tim and Kathy on their program. Tim was setting his affairs in order. You know, I was thinking about the two-sided coin, uh, Tim, because, you know, you don't have the kind of writing output that you have had over these decades if you don't have your schedule as regimented as you've had it. But then at the same time, you know, it can go too far. It's With all Mm -hmm. of us, I mean, it's hard to find a good balance there. We're going to start finding ways to get some of Tim's curriculum and his courses and things like that out there. And they're, they're nine-tenths written, so it could be a two-book-a-year. What Kathy's talking about is what we're trying to do is I've been to, trying to do an inventory of all of my material. I've, I've done a lot of teaching over the years. So I'm inventorying it so that I'm not the only person who knows where everything is sure. and who could actually pick a lot of this stuff up and get it out the door if I'm not in the best uh, health or if I'm not here. Okay, now you just released a book here, like what, two months ago? But wait. Yep, forgive. So f- you're saying, Kath, you're letting this out, this number, 57,000 documents. Those go back, what, to the 60s, Tim? Uh, actually, well, no, uh, they go back in the early 80s. I actually do have uh, 1,500 sermons I wrote in uh, Hopewell, Virginia, from 75 to 84. They're handwritten, but they're here too. So anyway, I don't, I, I don't know. You know, we'll see. I'm just trying to make sure that my heirs and my sons and all that know where everything is sure. and where things are in order. Where this stuff is. Sure. Yeah. Well, we're, we just want to say out loud that we're happy you're here now, right? We don't need to just know you for, through your documents. <laughs> we're glad to actually be talking to you. Yeah. 
So then if there is a revival, and, and Tim, in the piece, in the Atlantic piece, you make a strong case that a revival is coming. Uh, is a lot of that hinged upon the decline of the established, you know, sort of waspish church that we all grew up in and a new church that hinges on a rise of immigrants who bring their faith yeah. to this country? Part of it is that Christianity is growing by leaps and bounds in Latin America, Africa, mm-hmm. China, and other places in the world. But there are other places in the world where the population is growing, too, unlike us. And so what always happens is the places where the population is growing faster tend to go to immigrate to places where the population is not growing as fast. And so what's going to happen over the next 50 years is so many people are going to be moving to the United States from those parts of the world that are more, you know, more Christian. And they're going to be bringing their missionaries with them. Listen, I do know this. In 1992... Koreans and Chinese people in New York City had already planted 300 new churches. Wow. 300 by 1992, over a 20-year period. Africans had planted 110. Now, I haven't been keeping up, but my guess is those numbers have at least doubled. Wow. And that's just New York. But that's going to start happening. And, of course, the kids are going to grow up, and we're going to all get married. And so increasingly, there will be strong-growing, multi-ethnic churches in this country. And that's exactly right, John. So when I hear that, it's thrilling to me. I think because John and I have been so fortunate to be able to travel around the world and meet people who believe in Jesus from different tribes and cultures. And it's, it's an, there's just not absolutely nothing like it. It truly is. It's truly is a foretaste of the kingdom. Um, I understand though, that there are probably a lot of people listening to the program who look at that with a little bit of trepidation and they think, well, you know, I don't want America to become South Korea. And so, you know, the ideas of immigration on in a geopolitical sense, get a little mashed up with thinking that the church is multicultural. Well, I'll tell you what, down here, I was just going to say, within the church, it's seasoning. It's not a totally new church, because what ends up happening is that when, uh, yeah, when Korean Americans come into the church, they bring something from their Korean Christianity. And the result in the end, though, is not Korean Christianity. It's, you know, I guess you could say it's more global Christianity. Mm-hmm. And you learn. I mean, when I first started having Asian staff members in my, on my church staff at Redeemer, they started telling me things that I could be doing a lot differently because in Korean churches they do it this way. And like one time out of two, I would say, ah, no, I'm not going to do it that way. I don't think that's a good way. But another one time out of two, I would say, that's better. Mm. That, that is a better way of doing it. And I was learning from my multi-ethnic staff. And Redeemer became a much stronger church, but recognizably an American church. When it comes to the geopolitical stuff, it doesn't mean the overthrow of America. Right, like right. Some, there's a, It just does not. People are still coming into American institutions, and I believe that the American institutions will be seasoned by all these immigrants just the way my church was, and it yep. still be a recognizable American church. I agree. And so whether we like it or not, despite our gnashing of teeth and fear of a changing country, that we will still, in, in many ways, still be Christian, whether yeah. it's Korean yeah. Christian or whomever, Christ will still be here in the United States of America. And here's the thing. I think the closer we become, the more, the more that we progress down the road of sanctification, each one of us, right, we're going to start to prize the things that God loves. 
and not the things that we hold on to so tightly. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't love America because I love America and I hope that the South Korean Christians love their, you know what I mean? I don't think there's anything wrong with patriotism, but there is something Mm -hmm. about our hearts that become more like him the more we know him. And so if he loves the multi-ethnic church, I really believe that our hearts are going to be drawn into that too. I totally agree. And it's also true, by the way, that every person, when you become a Christian, you're changed a bit from the non-Christian culture around you, whatever it is. So I do know, for example, America is extraordinarily individualistic. Like, I, I can do my own truth, and I you can define you. myself. Right. Well, American churches are relatively individualistic compared to Korean churches. On the other hand, we've been changed by the Bible. The Bible doesn't let us go all the way in that direction. Actually, Korean churches, and I'm saying this because I know them, tend to be authoritarian a little bit more because Korean culture is authoritarian. But Christianity, it modifies that. Christianity keeps the authoritarianism of some cultures, and it moderates it inside the church, just like it's Mm -hmm. moderated individualism inside Mm -hmm. the American church. We ought to be very happy for the fact that God is bringing us together across these racial barriers and letting us be. I mean, when I become a Christian, I'm not a Chinese Christian. I'm an American Christian, Mm -hmm. but I'm also different. I'm letting the gospel critique my Americanness in some ways, and it makes me, I think, a better American, but certainly a great Christian, too. Coming up, Keller's invitation to the Christian faith. I think most skeptics are used to people saying, oh, Christian, religion is true. I'm not going to actually spend much time trying to to prove that it is. I'm actually going to try to show you why, uh, why Christianity actually offers so much. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Calvin McCullough. Many preachers have built megachurches. Relatively few have done so with conversion growth in a highly secular and urban environment steeped in biblical literacy. Tim Keller had an uncommon ability to tell old truths in a fresh way. He was jealous for the glory of God. Those are just a few sentences of the tribute to Tim Keller from D.A. Carson, the evangelical theologian. Together they founded the Gospel Coalition, an association of churches committed to the gospel. Tim Keller was intent on presenting an invitation to the skeptical. That was the subtitle of his 2016 book, Making Sense of God. He joined my friend Eric Metaxas then to talk about it. Now, Tim, listen, I I joke around whenever I'm happy, and I'm happy because it's rare that you give radio interviews, and you've got a book out called Making Sense of God, an invitation to the skeptical. Mm-hmm. Um, to my mind, you are, uh, if I can think of a skeptic, I would think the first place I'd like to take him is to hear you speak or to, uh, to, to get them to read one of your books because you have a particular penchant for speaking to people who maybe aren't on the same page when it comes to faith. I would say most of your books uh, you know, are, are good for skeptics to read, but what is it about this book that makes it so... Uh, particularly directed at skeptics? I mean, to to call it an invitation to the skeptical. Well, 
Um, it's actually a, uh, um, you know, I wrote another book, a more traditional book, making a case for Christianity. It's called The Reason for God, and it's more of a traditional case. Here's why you should believe in God. Here are the arguments for God. Here's why you should believe in Christianity. Here's the evidence for Christianity. And it's, um, obviously, that's for skeptics, too. This was, however, uh, I call this a prequel, actually, uh, something that I'm, something that actually comes before you would ever want to sit down and, um, uh, you know, give your time to think about, why, you know, give your, why would you sit down and subject yourself to two or three hundred pages, if you're a skeptic, uh, on why Christianity is true? Why would I even want to do that? Right. Why, why would I even think that that was worth my time? Right. And I think the answer to that would be this book, if you agree with it. And this book is a book that says, um, it'd be great if Christianity was true. I just want, I, I'm inviting you into a discussion uh, to something probably sounds more outrageous than the prospect that it would, that it's true. Um, I think, I think most skeptics are used to people saying, oh, Christian, you know, religion is true. But this is trying to say that I would like to show you that it would be, that it would be really great if it was. I'm not going to actually spend much time trying to, to, to prove that it is. I'm actually going to try to show you why, uh, why Christianity actually offers so much. So it's more of an invitation for a conversation. I have found that some skeptics are probably more uh, unhappy with a book like this than the traditional book that they're used to, uh, because I think they think it's actually even more outrageous. But I'm hoping people will read it. Wow. Um, I'm hoping people will at least buy it. That's the most important thing. Don't ever forget that. Um, but seriously, when you make this case um, uh, for God or for for the, for the idea of God that that that, that you're making, the, I mean, it's it's sort of hard to to frame it exactly. But but what you just said, I guess, um, is that you you want to help think you want to help people think about thinking about God before yeah. you think about God Himself. You want to think about yeah. the idea of thinking about God, and so it's. Uh, it's it's a little bit more on a philosophical level. Your your writing is not uh, your writing is 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 on a popular level, so it's a book for everybody. But that is that a fair mm -hmm. assessment of what you've just said this time? Yeah. In other words, this time it's 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 talking more about well, how do how does any particular view of the world make sense? How do we how do we decide that Christianity isn't true? Now, how does that right. happen? How do you decide that it is? How do you decide there isn't a God? How do you decide there is a God? So to some of it is is trying to say, let's talk about how we think about these things. Um, and uh, so I'm challenging the idea that if you disbelieve in God, it's because you just have appealed to reason. And if you believe in God, you simply have made a leap of faith. Right. And I start by trying to say that's way too simplistic. Right. So you're right. The book is addressing how we come to our beliefs or our disbelief, and I'm trying in the beginning to say it's actually a relatively messy. It's not as simple as reason or faith. But then I try to go on and say part of the way in which we choose our view of things is whether it appeals to us, uh, whether it gives us the meaning and satisfaction and freedom and identity that we hope for. And, uh, and so I go into that, too. So what I'm really not talking about here's why you should believe in God. Uh, it's more along the lines of how do we think about God, and here's why it would be great if there was a God. So it's it's really not the traditional 
what's often called apologetics. It's not that. It's pre-apologetics, or is it? Is it? Well, it's not. You know what? If you actually go back and read the early apologists, like Justin Martyr and Origen and Augustine, um, this would be apologetics because they didn't only argue uh, why Christianity was true, but also why it was helpful, why it was good, why it made you a good citizen. You know, in the early days. Uh, one of the great charges against Christianity was because it was so exclusive, because you wouldn't worship the Roman gods that you were bad right. citizens. Right. And so they were making the case that, no, no, we're, we're fine citizens. And actually, that is a case we have to make again. So apologists, today, apologetics tends to mean for Christians the kind of rational case. You know, the Josh McDowell, you know, here's the evidence. Uh, I do right. think if, technically, I think that's uh, too narrow a definition. So what I'm doing by ancient standards is apologetics, but right. probably by more recent standards, it's not. Well, t- tell us now, uh, l- let's get into the book here, because um, that's the idea that the subject, the title rather, is Making Sense of God, an Invitation to the Skeptical. What are some of the things that you have to get at to make this larger argument? Well, you already um, um, mentioned the first part of the book, basically, which is you start. I started by saying, uh, I'm not going to talk about. I'm not going to try to prove that that God exists. I'm going to talk about how does anybody come to believe God exists or He doesn't. Right. So we spend some time on that. And I'm trying. I'm pressing the skeptic to see that a lot of his or her position is really faith based, and I know that there's a lot of resistance there. Um, so I try to say that, frankly, humanistic atheism is a faith, and Christianity is a faith. I get a lot of pushback, but that's the first part of the book. In well, which, you get pushback because people flat out don't like it. They don't they, like uh, it. Logically, I don't think they have a leg to stand on, and it, it makes them very uncomfortable. Well, I actually think, yeah, I mean, I, I, I tell you, if you, if you um, debate somebody over the existence of God, um, I think it's, you know, it's a fair fight because it's, there's a. It's not that easy to to prove that. Frankly, it isn't uh, prove that there's a God. So there's a lot of uh, doubt. You know, I feel like that's a kind of fair fight. If you're debating somebody over whether uh, humanistic atheism is a faith, frankly, I feel like it's a whole lot easier uh, debate to win. Right. And um, so th- that's the first part of the book, and I do think that's. And we already talked about that. So how do you? come to believe in God or disbelieve in God? And the answer is a mixture of reason and faith. That's, so I just say yeah. it's both. Right. Then I get into the heart of the book, which is what you're asking, I think, and I say there's six things that you can't live without. Nobody can live without. It's meaning, satisfaction, freedom, identity, a basis for justice, and hope. Coming up, Tim Keller on Jesus and the Psalms. He quotes the Psalms more than, he, than any other book of the Old Testament, uh, and you want to know why. In fact, he quotes it as he's dying, when he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, Psalm, 22. Psalm 22. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. 
Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Kevin McCullough. Thanks for joining us today as we honor the life and legacy of Tim Keller, a man who we know was a high-profile Christian leader and one of the top Christian authors of all time. But Tim Keller was a man who simply loved Christ. He loved God's Word, and he had a devotional life that was worthy of emulation. In 2015, Tim and Kathy joined Frank Sontag to discuss the Songs of Jesus, a year of daily devotions in the Psalms. At the time, Frank was our host on KKLA in Los Angeles. Would you please both speak to why you decided to put this book together and why a devotional? Kathy? Well, um, an awful lot of the devotionals that we were running into, that we would see that people in our staff and in our church were using, were, to put it uh, kindly, milk, not meat. Maybe not even... Maybe not even milk, more like um, artificially flavored, <laughs> um, processed food. You know, it wasn't. It wasn't scripture. It wasn't interacting with scripture. It was just sort of thoughts that were inspirational in some vague and undefined way. And we, I guess, we thought we're not the best people in the world to be writing a devotional, but maybe we could at least steer people in the direction of something more meaty. Mm. Would you say that was right, Jim? Yep, I would. Now, as far as the Psalms go, is this something that before you put together, Tim, Kathy, you both did together? Uh, well, yes. I mean, in the sense that we both have spent years and years, we're, we're older people, so therefore we have spent years and years using the Psalms in our lives. Um, I probably. Well, to be fair, you more than me. Dear. Well, I have. Pro- well, I was going to say I have probably been more methodical in getting through the Psalms regularly every year, several times, at least once a month. Where I try to do it. Uh, that means all 150 once a month for the last 20. Years. Right. <clears throat> On the other hand, uh, Kathy, we, Kathy's had a number of years in which she had a lot of health challenges, and the Psalms were a way that we. Um, uh, that she and I both uh, used to get through those difficult times. So when we wrote the devotional, if this is what you're getting at, it was in a sense, because it's based on the Psalms, it was a record of the ways in which God's used the book of Psalms in our lives in the past. Mm. We as Christians, we think we know how to pray, and yet when it comes to learning how to pray, Jesus exemplified that and used the Psalms. Uh, yeah, in fact, um, he quotes the Psalms more than, he, than any other book of the Old Testament. Uh, and you want to know why. In fact, he quotes it when he's dying, when he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, Psalm 22. Psalm 22. And so if he, was, he was so immersed in the Psalms, so completely saturated with them, that when he talked to God, when he, when he processed the big difficulties in his life, that was, uh, that, that was actually the, um, uh, the way in which he did it. He did it through, through, prayer, uh, through the Psalms. Tim and Kathy Keller are my guests. Uh, Tim and or Kathy, whichever of you um, would like to chime in, when we think of devotional books, I think in some ways there's a stigma and kind of a bad misrepresentation, like somehow it's just a book you look at, a couple minutes, you're good to go, and then you're on with your day. Your book is a little different. Your book is about prayer. Your book is about getting deep in the Psalms as well. Well, it could be used that way if you were really in a hurry on a given day. We all have days like that, that you could read the Scripture passage, read the um, commentary slash devotional thought, and read the prayer and be done. Now, uh, that would leave you 
pretty spiritually dry if you did that for very long. Uh, the front of the book actually suggests a couple of different ways that you can use it, um, that you can look up the other scripture references that are in the inspiration commentary part uh, to fill that out. And also, um, Tim has a system that he uses on all scripture when he's doing devotions, and he simplified it for this book, where before you read anything other than the scripture, you read the scripture passage, and before you read anything else, either in this book or some other commentary, no matter what piece of scripture you're looking at, you ask yourself, what did you learn about God for which you could praise or thank him? That could be called adoration. What did you learn about yourself for which you could repent? That could be called admit. And what did you learn about life that you could aspire to, ask for, and act on? So you can remember that with the acronym ADORE, ADMIT, ASPIRE. So before you do any of the rest of the the page of the devotional, you can read the scripture and with your own notebook sit down and answer those questions. You know, wrestle with the scripture and say, well, what did I learn about God that is either praiseworthy or that I can thank him for? Well, what did I learn about myself that I need to repent of? Because Scripture is always pointing those things out. And what could I change in my life that the Scripture is pointing me to? And then go on and read the rest of what's written on the page. But wrestle with the Scripture part yourself. So, I mean, you can lengthen it or shorten it according to your need, but I wouldn't recommend that you that the balance is weighed heavily in the shortening side. Coming up. If there's a God up there who's never become human, and you're down here just trying to hope that someday you'll be good enough, maybe he'll take you to heaven, none of this works. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. It appeared to back sharply and smash directly. Another plane just hit. Oh, my God. Another tower, ladies and gentlemen. Another explosion at tower number two of the World Trade Center just happened. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Kevin McCullough. Tim Keller served as senior pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church from 1989 to 2017. There has been, of course, no shortage of challenges and struggles here in this great city over the course of those nearly three decades. But nothing can compare to the events of 9-11 of 2001 and the most lethal attack on U.S. soil in our nation's history. Pete Peterson, our partner and friend of the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy, was in New York during that period. He joined Seth Liebson on AM 960, The Patriot in Phoenix. Do you want to say a word about his life, his teaching, and what it meant and he meant to you? Yeah, well, I, you know, lived, uh, grew up in the New York metropolitan area. I first heard about Tim Keller and his Redeemer Church, which met in Manhattan in a couple different locations, one on the Upper East Side, one on the Upper West Side. And I started going myself in the mid-90s to the gathering at Hunter College up on, I think it was 66th Street off of Madison or Park Avenue. And just incredible to see someone who is so well-versed in so many different areas. He would quote from literature, quote from 
research studies, quote, from current events, and um, just always able to weave a gospel message through so many different stories. And I was just entranced. I would get there uh, to service usually 15 minutes ahead of time and be right there in front of them, maybe five rows from, from the stage. And over the course of six or seven years, learned so much from him. I'll never forget the events around 9-11, which, of course, had rocked the nation, but mm-hmm. really did mm-hmm. um, alter New York City. He held a, a special service on a Wednesday night mm-hmm. soon after, and I went to that service. And um, just he, he, was a, he was a real pastor to the city at that time. He went from this Christian intellectual and just a great preacher to a real pastor of a hurt and mourning city, and um, just a giant, really, a giant in the Christian faith, and certainly in New York City. Um, I continue to listen to his sermons and um, continue to be impacted by him, and uh, a real loss, but uh, boy, talk about a life. September 11, 2001 was a Tuesday. On Sunday that week, Tim Keller addressed a hungry crowd with a line waiting to get in that stretched out the door. I have a nightmare, recurring nightmare, that my wife finds a very, she's very flattered by this. The nightmare is that my wife dies. Oh, in the nightmare, she's dead and she's died or something's happened. I'm trying to make it without her. That's my nightmare. Of course, she's very flattered by it because obviously my greatest fear. Let me tell you something really weird. I almost like having the nightmare now. You know why? because the first minute after you wake up is so unbelievably great. The first minute to wake up and to say, oh my gosh, it was only a bad dream and everything bad that I was living through has come untrue. It's not just like I've awakened and somebody's gonna give me something that'll kind of make it better in the sense of, you know, here's another wife. (laughs) No, what I like about waking up is that it becomes untrue. It was just a bad dream. This is morning. It's just a wonderful feeling to say, it's morning, and the ba- it was only a bad dream. Do you know what Jesus Christ is saying when he says, I am the resurrection? He is saying not, I'll give you a nicer place. But he says, I am going to make everything that happened this week be a bad dream. I'm not just going to give you a consolation. I'm going to make it come untrue. I'm going to incorporate even the worst things that have ever happened to you I'm, it's, it's going to be incorporated. It's going to be, it's going to be taken up into the glory that is to come in such a way that only it makes the glory better and greater for having once been broken. There's nobody who puts it better than Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky says in the Brothers Karamazov this fascinating passage. Listen to it. He says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. Listen to this. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice. It will comfort all resentments. It will atone for all the crimes, for all the blood that's been shed, that it will make it not only possible. See, something so precious that it will make not only it possible to forgive, but to justify everything that happened. I feel like I'm looking into a deep abyss when he says that, and I know what he means. What he's trying to say is we're not just going to get some kind of consolation that will make it possible to forget. Everything bad is going to come untrue. Do you remember that? At the end of The Lord of the Rings, Sam the Hobbit, who thought everything was going wrong, he wakes up, and the sun is out, and he sees Gandalf. 
the great wizard. And I mean, to me, this is the quintessence of Jesus' promise. He says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? The answer of Jesus is yes. Someday will be the great morning. The morning, not M-O-U-R-N, M-O-R-N-I-G. The great morning that won't just console us. See, that's what Dostoevsky is trying to say. But rather, we'll take all of those horrible memories, everything that bad has ever happened, and it'll actually be consumed. It'll be brought up back in. It'll become untrue. It'll only enrich the new world in which everything is put right. Everything. Do you believe this? <laughs> Jesus says, do you believe? You say, I want to believe this. Well, don't you see? If Jesus is the Son of God, who has come from heaven, if he's the incarnate Son of God, he's died on the cross so that we could be forgiven, so that God could destroy evil someday and all suffering without destroying us. See, that's the whole idea behind the cross. He pays the penalty for injustice. Do you believe the gospel? If you believe the gospel, then you've got to believe that. There's a lot of people in this room that do believe the gospel, but you haven't really activated that, have you, this week? That's what I'm here to help you do. You haven't thought about that. Your heart hasn't leapt. You haven't wept when you thought about it. If, on the other hand, you don't really believe that Jesus is the Son of God, all I ask you to do is keep coming and explore it because Jesus says, unless you believe in me, that's just a pipe dream. If there's a God up there who's never become human, hmm, and you're down here just trying to hope that someday you'll be good enough, maybe he'll take you to heaven, none of this works. But if you do believe not in a God who, if we're good enough, we can get up to his heaven, but a God who is willing, this is the gospel, to come and die, to resurrect the whole world, a God who would come into our lives. If you believe in that, you can believe in that. C.S. Lewis at one point says, if we let him, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into dazzling, radiant, immortal creatures, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. He will make us into bright stainless mirrors which reflect back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. That is what we are in for, nothing less. Coming up, Christianity alone of all the religions tells us that God lost a son in an unjust attack. A few more minutes of Tim Keller. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Kevin McCullough. It seems like Tim Keller was always calm and quiet-spirited. He was not particularly animated in the pulpit, and he certainly was not rattled. Not even amidst the cloud of smoke and stench of death that came to our nation on that dark day. Let's catch a few more minutes of his sermon titled, Truth, Tears, Anger, and Grace, looking to give people hope on the heels of 9-11, based on John 11, 1 through 44. Did you notice the last line of the story? It said, when Jesus Christ raised Lazarus from the dead, from that day on, the Pharisees knew they had to kill him. Now that he'd done that, now that he'd done that, his enemy said, now he's got to go. He's the most dangerous man there is. We've got to get rid of him now. Don't you think he knew that? When he was raising Lazarus from the dead, don't you think he knew that? Yes, he did. And here's what that means. Jesus Christ knew and made a deliberate choice. He knew that the only way to interrupt Lazarus's funeral was to cause his own. The only way to bring Lazarus out of the grave was to bury himself. The only way he'd get Lazarus out of death was for him to be killed. He knew that. And boy, is that a picture of the gospel or what? Here's what the gospel is. We have a God who is so committed to ending suffering and death 
that he was willing to come into the world and in, be involved in that suffering and death himself. See, there's an awful lot of people just praying to a general God, but I'm sure that God somehow is loving us. Well, I don't know that. Only Christianity, Christianity alone of all the religions tells us that God lost a son in an unjust attack. Only Christianity tells us that. Only Christianity tells us that God has suffered. Because when somebody says to me, I don't know that God cares about our suffering. I don't know that God cares about it at all. And I say, yes, he does. I say, how do you know? Well, I tell you something. If I was in any other religion, I wouldn't know what to say. But what I can say is the proof is that he was willing to suffer himself. And I don't know why he hasn't been suffering and evil by now. But the fact that he was willing to be involved and he himself got involved is proof that if he, he must have some good reason because he cares. He's not remote. He's not away from us. Isn't it amazing that Jesus Christ with Martha and Mary was such so different Martha and Mary, sisters, same situation, same circumstances, same brother, right? And they even had the same question. Did you notice that? Martha and Mary asked Jesus the same question word for word. But with Martha's case, Jesus almost gives her a rebuke and lays truth on her. And in Mary's case, Jesus just weeps with her. Why? Jesus is the perfect counselor. He will always give you what you need. If you need truth, if you need tears... He'll give it to you the day you need it. He'll give it to you in the dosage you need it. He'll give it to you in the order you need it because he's the only perfect counselor there is. So you need to go to him. You need to get his tears. You need to get his truth. You need to get his anger. You need to see all those things. But most of all, you need to get his grace. Thank you for joining us for the Christian Outlook. I hope you enjoyed the program. If you know of someone who's been thinking about the big questions of life, please consider sharing this program with them. You can find it at ChristianOutlook.com. Thanks for joining us today. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producer David Posehan, I'm Kevin McCullough. Join us again next time for the Christian Outlook. Run the Army's race in person at the Pentagon. Army 10-Miler General Registration is now open. Go to Army10Miler.com to register today. General Registration presented by General Dynamics. Register today at Army10Miler.com.